Hey guys, welcome to another episode of the All Things Strength and Wellness Podcast. I'm your host, as always, Robbie Burke. And we're brought to you by upmentorship.com, one of the top strength and conditioning resources available online today. This episode's guest was strength and conditioning coach John Kiley. John uh, has been previously involved with the Irish Rugby Squad and is currently a senior lecturer at the University of Central Lancashire in the UK. John has also previously served as the head strength and conditioning coach for UK Athletics. On this episode, John and I discuss John's background and influences, programming and periodization, cognitive biases. John also talks about experts versus masters and the work of Philip Tetlock. John also touches on the concept of path dependence. And John also gives his top advice for all the listeners tuning in. And we went through much more over the course of the show. Uh, this is a really great episode, guys, and I hope you really enjoy it. Okay, Coach John Kiley, it is an absolute pleasure and an honor to have you come on to my podcast. Just for the listeners who might be too familiar with who you are, John, just fit us in on your background. Uh, yeah, so I am currently SNC coach. Uh, I've worked, you know, I've, I've been in the field for quite a long time. Uh, and most of my original career, and actually, I actually came up through the through the gyms. Uh, I was a gym instructor, coaching a couple of sports uh, before I ever thought of going to college and doing sports science. And it was only when they got um, when the University of Limerick brought a sports science course on board that I thought I'd chance my hand at it. But I'd already spent quite a quite a bit of time in the field uh, I competed internationally as well as an athlete at that stage so I, I had a good bit of experience both training and uh, and I guess practically as a coach and a, a, as an instructor uh, yeah so as regards work uh, worked with the predecessor of the Irish Institute of Sport National Coaching and Training Centre for a few years did a Masters in Edinburgh under Professor Mike Stone uh, came back worked in Ireland did a bit of work with Munster Rugby, uh, Athletic Association of Ireland, Rowing Association, Paralympic Association, a whole mess of different associations. In around 2005, I moved to the UK. Uh, I was offered a position as the Head of Strength and Conditioning for UK Athletics. So uh, worked with them for five or six years, went through the Beijing cycle, brought a couple of athletes through to London 2012. Uh, at that stage, I was looking for a way back to Ireland, really. Uh, my partner was back here, so I got a job at a university in the UK as a senior lecturer in elite performance. But the deal was I could do it from um, I could do it from a little back kitchen in a little village in rural Ireland. So, so that's it. That's where I am now. I, um, I work for a British u- university, but I do it from uh, I do it from my kitchen in Ireland. Great stuff. John, just a, a question I always ask uh, all of the guests on the show is who would you say have been the biggest influences on you both as a coach and also as a person? Well, I, I guess uh, I guess there's obvious answers to that that everyone would give, you know, their parents, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, um, yeah, as a, from a coach, I guess it was... This may sound... I, I don't know how this will sound, but... I, like most uh, young athletes, I got a lot of time from a lot of coaches who were, you know, they didn't have any specific huge expertise or time in the trade or anything like that, but they gave their time and their heart was in it and it was free time and it was all amateur stuff. Uh, and I've never really forgotten that. And, you know, I still, you know, I, I go down our local boxing club and I have done for the past 20 years and I coach on Friday night and just try and return that favour just give some free time to, to kids you know you're never going to see their names in lights but you know ju- just give some time uh, and I think then as regards influence yeah I mean there be a number of people there be a, a number of people I've, I've worked with over the years that have been good influences uh, Professor Dave Collins sports psych uh, over in the UK uh is a good friend and we we bounce off one another as much as we agree but it's always good to have someone that you can disagree with and and he's good at disagreeing so so yeah so he's a i don't know if he's a good influence but he's definitely an influence 
Um, and yeah, I mean, there's lots of coaches, lots of people I work with now, and lots of athletes I've worked with that I've learned a lot from uh, over the past few years. Uh, a couple of the rugby guys, Paul O'Connell, just an exceptional professional. Uh, but I think there's a number of exceptional professionals in the in, in the Irish rugby setup. Um, Lauren Massaro, world squash champion, 2013. Uh, again, very professional. Uh, motivated keen and I, I guess when you work with athletes and coaches that are like that when they're just really striving to be better all the time it, it, it lifts you and it, it adds focus and it kind of uh, I guess it gives an edge and yeah so I would think if I was to try and summarize that I'd lump them all together and anyone who really works hard to try and be better at something I, I Personally, I take energy from that, and, and, and that's what I try and replicate in my own daily practice. That's great stuff. So, John, the the main reason why I suppose we're uh, we're talking today is I came across a a paper and also a chapter from a book you've done, and uh, the paper you done was called Periodization Paradigms. Uh, in the 21st century, evidence-led or, tradi- or tradition-driven. And the chapter then you wrote for a book was called Planning for Physical Performance, the Individual Perspective. And uh, the subtitle was Planning, Periodization, Prediction, and Why the Future Ain't What It Used to Be. So the, the sort of theme running through your, your writings, uh, just, just to summarize it, and you can correct me if, if, if I come across, uh, if I don't like do, your, do yourself justice in the point you were trying to get across. But it seems like you were kind of saying that periodization models, uh, the, the traditional way of looking at them was that they were very rigid and that they came across as if that they could absolutely predict the outcomes that would happen to any sort of athlete or organism that was stimulated by a particular plan. Um, and you were kind of saying that, listen, human beings are too much of a dynamic organism to be able to say that without question, this is the exact result they're going to get from this periodized plan. And you kind of then question some of the literature uh, around is there actually any scientific proof for periodization um, and you were kind of saying is it maybe just more so the vari- variation in training is what's happening more so than actually the periodization plan is what's leading to results uh, and I'll, I'll stop here because I'm sure there's a lot more to this thought process through these two papers and I'll let you kind of take it from there so the question will be you know what what is your thought when you hear the term periodization and, and you know so I'll just let you run away with that well, I guess the problem with the term is that it means different things to different people. Mm. But when the term was coined originally, it meant something specific. It wasn't just a, a byword for planning in general. It was a, a specific type of plan that was divided up into, you know, and we all know the terms, the microcycle, macrocycle, mesocycle, and each was nested within the other. Uh, and again, it was really one of the big ideas coming out of the, the Soviet Union. Um, I, I guess um, Matfield published his little green book, uh, or sorry, it was translated into English in 1980, 1981, and, and that's where we, we first got it. And of course, in the West, we, we jumped at this because the Soviet Union was so dominant at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we assumed that it was right and it was sounded scientific because it was very hard to understand so we all kind of jumped at it and thought hey this is great this is the way to go but so if we take that that original uh, conception of what periodization is that's that's ridiculously easy to poke holes in Uh, it was based on no real science it was based on a a very kind of early mid 20th century mindset it was based on and really what they did was they took a lot of training data a huge amount of training data and they averaged it in you know weightlifting cycling and swimming i think were the three sports and then they worked out they basically were using numbers worked out what the best system would be which is a ridiculously broad way of doing it but again, I guess in this day and age, no one argues for very traditional periodization. But what we do do is we still 
we're still searching, or at least some people are still searching for this, what's the ideal form of periodization? Is it block periodization? Is it reverse periodization? Is it, you know, and there's all, there's, there's all different names, you know, nonlinear. Uh, conjugate. Yeah, con conjugate sequence, yada, yada, yada. Um, but basically, I guess if I was to put all of these together, the key thing, the key underpinning uh, tenet is that, first of all, that we can optimally pre-plan, that there is optimal pre-planned structures that work pretty much across the board. Uh, and if you look at the periodization literature, it, it was really, it, it coagulated around a number of personalities, all, you know, old white males, the Soviet uh, you know, Verkochansky, Makviev, uh, Chine, Bondarchuk, Isurin, you know, all, all names that have become well known in this field. Mm. Uh, and really, I think a lot of the early literature was more of a personality, more of a bitch fight, really, between some of these guys. Certainly, Ver Verkochansky, Makviev, Isurin, they all hammered one another. Uh, they all claimed that scientific right was on their side and not on the other side. But really, for me, it was a case of the emperor's new clothes. Everybody wanted to see something. Because you know what? Planning is a really tough problem. So it would really be in our interests, in my interest as a coach, if somebody else had solved that problem for me. So I think it was the emperor's new clothes. And you kind of, you know, take, pay your money, take your choice. You could be a Verkachansky person, you could be a Genia person, you could be a Bomba person, whatever it is. Uh, but from a scientific perspective, they were just building, building castles, uh, you know, made on sand. Mm -hmm. uh, typically, there was, you know, and, and the standard, the standard, I guess, excuse or get out of jail card was, well, you can't really. You can't really see the evidence because it's all old Soviet science and it's not published in English and so on. And uh, but you know, if you take the time, if you get Matthew's book Fundamentals of Sports Training and you try and read it, it's either the most intelligent, brilliantly written book in the world, or it's the worst written book ever. Mm -hmm. You know, I can't understand it, and I've been looking at it for fifteen years at least. And it's hard to get a page, to read a page of it without your brain trying to crawl through your ears. Um, now, it may well be it was well written and, and the translation is terrible, but I would challenge anybody to read that and take a clear message from it. Or for any two people to read it and take the same message from it. It's so badly expressed and uh, so fluffy that you can really take any meaning you want from it. But yet we, we idolised it. You know, it was the book, it was the secret of Soviet success was one of the big phrases that was used. And so I'm going the long way around saying, I think all of this periodization dogma that we had is uh, was very much based on an illusion. Now, you mentioned variation. If you look at the actual research, what you'll see is that, and typically the research would fall into these standard um, formats. It'd be like one group would have no variation, one group would have variation. Who improves? And normally, not all the time in the studies, but normally it would be the group that had variation would improve. Mm -hmm. And if we happen to be using one type of periodization, then that was seen as proof that this type of periodization works. Yeah. And it was just laughably simplistic. Now, we move forward a few years to more recent times and, and you know the, the studies become a little more discerning in their design but you're still do, you're still introducing change to a group and then you're averaging the group outcomes and then you're making a value judgment based on that average group outcome whereas if we know one thing from the past 10 years in training science is that people respond very differently so whether or not your average is meaningful or not is probably just a question of luck. But we're certainly nowhere near the stage where we can say, well, that type of periodization is best, or you know, this type of periodization is, is, is worse. 
I think what what we do know is that most of the time variation is a good thing. And if you want to improve, you need to you need to vary your training to some degree. Now, I don't think that's as much a scientific fact as a common sense fact. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's not a case that variation is is always going to, uh, you know, more variation is always better. That's obviously not the case because at some uh, stage you get to this stage where your training is too diffuse and you're not really making gains anywhere. So I think a lot of the the training conundrum is how can I design training structures that provide this athlete or this team with enough variation without ex uh, without that variation being, being too widely dispersed and the second part of that is well how how do I how do I balance training so it's not too monotonous and by monotonous I mean the training isn't too self-similar so there's two concepts here that are the kind of the mirror image of each other. There's variation and there's monotony. Uh, a way to think about it is monotony would be if I concentrated on one thing and just did one thing for a limited number of time. So I, that could be anything. It could be if I'm a runner, it could be a certain, you know, it could be 800 repeats for a mile runner or whatever it might be. Uh, or it could be a certain mode of weight training. And, you know, this is part of the kind of a, the idea around block periodization. We just focus on a limited number of, of, of training targets for a, a specific time. Now, if you do that, you will improve that's those specific targets relatively quickly. But if you keep doing that for too long, then you're going to expose yourself to the risks associated with training monotony, which are overuse injury, uh, staleness, overtraining and, and they're quite well documented in the literature so if you do training that is too monotonous too long too hard you'll run into trouble the flip side of that then is variation <clears throat> too much variation you don't get enough uh, adaptation in the areas that you need adaptation too little variation you're exposed to uh, the risks of, of monotony so so I think a good way to look at training planning is how do I balance those two concepts? And for me, periodization structures don't give you that. They might give you a very general, uh, a very general template to work to, but if you just buy into the template, then I would suggest that you're inhibiting clarity of vision, and you are probably likely to, you are more likely to run into trouble. So in in a nut in a nutshell, what I'm what I'm saying I, I'm I'm not trying to paint a, a black and white dichotomy here. I'm not saying that all periodization is rubbish. Uh, you have to be very individually tailored and very customized all the time. I'm not saying that at all. What I am saying is, if we err too much on the side of the periodization dogma. Then for me, that's going to inhibit our. That's going to, in a sense, take over some of our thinking, and we're not going to subject that to scrutiny. We're just going to say, well, I'm going to use, you know, Verkachansky's model, and this is the way he did it, and you know, that's really nice for us because we can. We don't necessarily have to think about it. We can just say, this is right because this famous person said it. But. Uh, yeah, I certainly wouldn't be recommending that. I think everything needs to be put under scrutiny, and I think a much better way to sit down to plan your training is where do we want to go, where are we now, uh, what have we at our disposal, and to work it out from first principles rather than just buying this off-the-shelf template, because that's really all it is. All the periodization models are generalizations based on generalizations applied to the general athlete in a general sport, and you're building in a lot of generalities there, and you're building in a lot of inaccuracies there. So, and all, all of this obviously sounds like I'm anti-periodization, and I'm not, but I am anti-automated thought or farming our thought processes out to to some hypothetical best model 
that has no foundation in a, no evidence-based foundation. That's all great stuff, John. Uh, just so, I suppose the next logical question then to ask would be, what do you do then when an athlete comes to you for training? So, like, uh, do you have still some sort of foundation or blueprint that you abide by, and from that you just kind of you you're, you make sure that you're adaptable to the individual? Again, going back to this kind of idea that humans are dynamic biological systems and you just can't have these rigid systems you said like you can't take this off the shelf periodization uh model and say right everyone has to fit to this model so in, in suppose in essence it's it's not fitting the person to the model it's fitting the model to the person so what 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 how do you go about that when an athlete comes to you like do you have some sort of uh assessment blueprint that everyone goes through and then th from there that kind of tells you where you think this individual may be in terms of what might be ideal for them as an athlete in terms of their planning of their training? Well, I guess there's a, there's a couple of things there. First of all, it, it, it's rarely that you would have, that I would have complete control over, over planning because, you know, I might be working with a, with a squad that already have their planning philosophy. So you think, okay, that's absolutely fine. But what I would try and do is just build in, um, build in as much finer decision making as possible. So in a sense, mm -hmm. and here's one of the big dangers of periodization, because we kind of assume that it's based on fact and evidence and all these great athletes did it in the past so it must be right, because we've all those things in our heads, we trust it too much. Yeah. And then we switch off our own, our, our inner cynic, and we, we don't question things, and you know, and we don't subject it to, to close evaluation. Like, hang on a second, is this really right for this person? So to get back to your question, I think that I'm not really too pushed to be honest. If someone comes, or I'm, I'm working with a squad, and whoever is doing the planning feels that well it's it's this it's you know it's conjugate sequence or it's whatever it might be i don't think that's too big a deal really i guess what is more important to me is is that plan set in stone or is that just you know this is the general plan and then i'd be wondering okay how often do we reevaluate and when do we reevaluate uh, and how often do we readjust do we readjust? Because here's the thing: there is no way. There, you know, I, and I cannot, I cannot find in any of the social psychology literature anywhere any human being that is 100% accurate in predicting the future. Mm -hmm. So we, first of all, I think we have to put our hands up and say, uh, I don't actually know what will work best for this athlete or team. I might have a hunch, you know. So let's go with that hunch let's design uh, the best process and organize the best planning structure that we can and let's roll with that but I'll tell you what I'm going to keep my eyes and ears open uh, and I'd much rather have constant subtle adjustment than keep going for you know four weeks or six weeks and then have to tear everything up and have massive adjustment so hopefully you can see the distinction there there's okay we're heading into the wilderness. We're not sure of the most effective path, but let's. But we have to make a start. So let's put our best foot forward. This is what plan we think will work. Let's start on the path, but let's reevaluate and redirect frequently and subtly, rather than periodically and drastically. Mm -hmm. And I think that way, first of all, you're 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 going to be uh, you're going to be less exposed to major error. Secondly, you're going to keep the faith of the players because what they're seeing is one plan that's been modulated around them rather than one plan that isn't changed until it's painfully obvious that it's not working. So, so I guess they're the type of subtleties that are built in. Now, if it's with an individual athlete, things tend to be uh, less uh, or maybe more ad adaptable. Uh, and in terms of that, I think 
we can't look at the plan on its own. We can't say this is the planning structure. You have to look at everything else. You have to look at the context. What planning structure is this athlete used to? What are the logistical constraints? Uh, is it time? Is, is this plan a safety blanket for the athlete that we need to keep in there to, to keep her confidence high? Or is this plan really, this isn't kind of where we want to go and, and, the, and the athlete is open to change? So it's all those, it's all those kind of things. Um, and I think one of the things that you will never see mentioned in the periodization literature, but is just it's just a gaping hole in it. And anyone that talks about periodization that doesn't weigh this off seriously needs to reevaluate what they're talking about. We can't plan without consideration of how the athlete uh, will respond to that plan. When I say respond to that plan, I mean what they will think of the plan, how they will emotionally respond to it, will they have faith in it, will they not have faith in it, do we allow them to feed into the plan, do we not allow them to feed into the plan, is the plan a, uh, a thing that where I say and you do, or is the plan something that, hey, let's talk about this, let's bulletproof this argument, let's look for holes, if we find them, let's fill them in, but, I, you know, anyone who's talking about elite planning, without thinking about those things, I, I, I think should maybe have a, a rethink, because those things are fundamentally important, I and mean, you'd much rather have an elite athlete that totally believes and commits to a poor plan than a, an elite athlete who has no faith in this meticulously worked out, brilliant plan. Uh, so, I don't think we can really separate the plan from the process, even though we have done historically. Uh, and none of the periodization papers really talk about process. Uh, none of them really talk about variation, or other for this, or except for the one get out of jail card that they all play, which is obviously something along the lines of obviously the plan needs to be changed if you know something happens or blah blah blah. They always put in one little get out of jail card. But actually, the most important thing is how is isn't the structure you set out with. It's how you plan to refine, review, readjust, redirect, how you're going to collect the information to do that. For me, that's more important than the actual plan that you set out with. Another, like, really, I'm just, I'm just, I'm speaking really carefully so there isn't a huge echo. Uh, another, like, really uh, interesting part in um, the chapter that you wrote for, for this book, again, the, the planning for physical performance, the individual perspective was your take on that the more dogmatic the practitioner the more likely they were to have decision making errors and this idea of confirmational bias versus the less dogmatic peers who resisted this temptation to always look for a, a cognitive bias and were much more open much more open to looking at like holds within their sort of philosophy so maybe just touch into this idea of confirmational bias and kind of people always cherry picking and you know, they're always trying to re reaffirm that their way is the right way instead of the people who actually had better decision-making outcomes were the ones who were more critically minded and open to scrutinizing their own work. Well, again, this is hugely interesting stuff and I think hugely relevant to to all of us working in sport and, and you know, and very relevant when we think about planning. And when we think about our planning legacy in terms of what's come before, uh, because that kind of sets the tone of what we're talking about. I mean, right now we're talking about periodization, which is, a, you know, a, it's something we've inherited rather than something we've designed ourselves from the ground up. So periodization emerged from the scientific knowledge of the 40s, 50s and 60s, which was a very mechanistic science. Uh, you mentioned dynamical systems. It wasn't dynamical systems. It was mechanistic. It was linear rationale. If I do this, mm. then this will pop out the other end, uh, which is, is not a fair reflection of reality. Now, people have tried to, if you like, update periodization by giving certain types of periodization a name, like non-linear periodization, but really all they're doing is pre-planning in a non-linear way. They're not recognizing. Well, actually, I don't know what the best training for you is going to be in two weeks. But you know what? It's going to be something like this. Let's say it's, it's this, but we'll review it this date and we'll, we'll tweak it as necessary. Something like that. But uh, to, get, 
to get back on the, um, the cognitive biases, if you think about how periodization emerged, it didn't emerge from science. It emerged from we had all of a sudden sport was gone professional. Uh, we had full-time coaches. We had people who used to train th three months a year, now thinking about training not nine months a year. Uh, and people were starting to think, well, well how, how are we going to organize this planning? Uh, and rationally enough, what people did was they looked to the planning models in the wider world. So what, how do businesses plan? How does the military plan? You know, and, and look for their planning direction from there and then fitted in the limited science that was available into those social planning models. Uh, and and the, the predominant social planning model at the time was, I, I guess, the model of the early industrial revolution and it was the model of uh, Frederick Winslow Taylor and mm. scientific management and, and basically he was the guy who worked in a machine shop or he ran a machine shop and time and motion studies a stopwatch, get you to do this, the next person to do this. You know, famously Henry Ford brought in the, the production line based on uh, Taylor's work. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know what? If you want to run a machine shop efficiently, that might be a really good way to do it. But if you're trying to run a country or a human body or a collection of humans that way, then that is a really bad model. Uh, and I guess, you know, obviously the classic massive fails of that method were when people tried to apply them to entities that weren't simple, that they were, were complex. So, I mean, the most the most tragically obvious failure of all time was uh, Lenin, you know, um, where they, <laughs> Lenin's economic policy that resulted in the death of millions of people just the, based the, on the five-year the five-year plans exactly the five-year plans I mean five-year plans just read mesocycle for that right mm -hmm. um, uh, you know they, they did a similar thing in communist China where it was like you know what iron is the way forward uh, take all the kids out of school and we get them all looking for nails in the fields because there might be nails out there whatever it is uh, and then there's a famine because you know what you do something and there's going to be unexpected consequences you know that's the way complex systems work they're they're chaotic in nature in terms that most of the time will be relatively predictable but if you get the wrong uh, the wrong convergence of, of, of behaviors then something really unexpected to happen and that's what you have to manage when you're working with athletes you have to manage the complexity you have to try and nudge them in the right direction through multiple different uh, dimensions rather than think well just get strong or you know whatever it is just build up your, your uh, cardiovascular s system if that was the case you know we'd have no need to go to the track we could just do it in the lab just measure VO2 and give the gold medal to the highest but that's not the way it works and, and that's why so much of the early science and so much of the early training theory and certainly so much of the early planning theory is just the bottom just falls out but if, if you look at it with any type of skeptical skeptical eye uh, so now I'm not sure if I answered your question but I'm on a roll here so uh, so when I say so and I, I guess what we're looking for is solutions we're not looking at and, and certainly I'm not looking at just uh, tearing down old ideas I'm not interested in that what I am interested in, in is understanding where we came from so we can do it better in the future so mm -hmm. me and my work I, I can I can be better planner or manipulator of plans or and so on so if we, if we go back to the kind of dichotomy between that mechanistic mindset and the complex the more complex mindset I guess one of the biggest, one of the other big lies of periodization theory is that you can guarantee a training effect by just manipulating the numbers. So, you know, and strength training dogma is just littered with this. Uh, you know, if you want to be, if, if you want to, if you want hypertrophy, then you do X amount of reps for X amount of sets at X intensity. If you want power, then you do this amount of reps at this intensity. 
yada yada yada. Well, you know what, that misses out quite a lot. It misses out the fact that, well, you're going to respond differently to a lot of different things based on who you are and where you are in your life. So, for example, and I, I know we've mentioned this briefly before, if you were to look at the adaptive filters that any training uh, stimulus has to go through before it falls out the other end as a training adaptation, there's quite a few of them. So obviously there's a genetic filter. Mm -hmm. You have your own uh, genetic inheritance that you've picked up from your ancestors. I have mine. We know we're both Irish. It's, li it's likely to be relatively similar. So our genetic inheritance is, is the assortment of genes that we have. So that's that's just one part of the equation. That would be that will influence how we respond to training, how we respond to everything. The other major influence isn't so much. And if you think of your 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 DNA, your genes as as your toolbox, then there's this concept of epigenetics, and that's really saying, well, it doesn't so much matter what genes you have; it's what gene networks are actually switched on that matters. And what gene networks are switched on is very much dependent on history, as in your history. Uh, and I, I don't know how much you want to go into this, but there's some really famous examples, like this stretches back to when you were in the womb. One of the most famous examples, the Dutch hunger winter, yeah. 1944, Nazis pulling back through Europe, uh, take all the food from the, the Dutch population, and there's all of a sudden there's a really short but really severe famine. Hundreds of thousands of people die. If you were a second or third trimester fetus seven decades ago, you are now more likely to be dead or obese or, or have a whole range of medical ailments and syndromes. Mm, like di like di diabetes and metabolic syndrome. Absolutely. All because when you were a fetus, you, you know, and I, I guess... The way DNA works is, you, when you're a fetus, certainly when you're a fetus, but when you're young, when you're developing, you take in signals from the external environment. Mm -hmm. they're, they're clues as to, to what the outside world is like. Is it a really threatening, dangerous place where food is very, very scarce? Or, you know, it's actually quite a nice place where it's okay to grow, it's okay to put uh, metabolic resources into brain development and into growing strong bones and all these types of things uh, and those signals run deep and uh, yeah so I'm going the long way around saying it's not just what genes you have it's what networks are switched on and that's down to history part of it is stuff we can't change it's early life but a lot of it is how active were you as a, as a younger kid how active are you now, and so on. And epigenetics changes in long time scales, and it changes in very short time scales. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it changes over years, months, and, and minutes and seconds. Uh, so, so there's that filter as well. The other thing that, again, it's one of the big oversights is I, I, I mentioned that athlete confidence in the program. If you were not so, all training adaptation is mitigated by. Uh, all, all, so let me put it this way: all training adaptation, all training stimulus is overlaid on a chemical background within your body and brain. Yeah. So you go to training, and you you have a certain uh, chemical soup in your brain and a certain chemical soup in your body. If you come to training you are really stressed, that soup would be very different in nature than if you come to training and you know what, you're pretty calm, you're in a good mood. Now, the training stimulus you overlay on that chemical environment uh, will have vastly different effects depending on what that chemical environment is. Mm -hmm. But we never think about that. So in, uh, what I'm saying is your mood will affect your training adaptation. Absolutely. It's, it's not about sets and reps. That's just a mechanical stimulus. Yeah. but the chemical environment is critical, what controls the chemical environment are you stressed is that negative stress is it positive stress are you emotionally distraught, are you rushed are, you know 
what are the hormones that are circulating? What are the neurotransmitters that are circulating? Because, you know, it, it, as we said at the start, it's, it's not just, uh, it's a simple, uh, here's my input and here's my predictable output. It's not like that at all. And again, I'm going a long way around saying we can, we can talk all we want to a periodization and the best, you know, four weeks is better than three weeks or 12 reps is better than five reps or whatever it might be. But we're ignoring the much bigger question, which is, okay, how do I, uh, how do I get the athlete on board here? How do I make sure the athlete feels confident in this program, that they feel their voice has been heard, that they feel that they've had an input into this, that they feel like that this is something that is really going to help them achieve their long-term goals? How do we do that? And if we, because if I sit and I plan and, and it's me and a piece of paper, then I don't think that's a good plan. If it's me talking to you and saying okay what have we done in the past where do we need to go in the future how do you think we should tweak it you need to buy into this now have you any things that you want to say about this have you any ideas uh, so I think in part it's a case of as coaches we kind of lose this God complex that you know and maybe that sounds a bit harsh but you know with this I know what to do really do we I think a much better place to start is we don't know what we're doing we have a good idea based on you know we all work hard to learn we all work hard to try to analyse our experience but our brains are too small complex reality is too big so it's not about doing it perfectly it's about how can I do this as right as possible how can I do well by this athlete and it all boils down to one simple thing which kind of brings us back around to what I was saying about periodization earlier. There are no shortcuts. If you want to put together a good program, you need to think your way through the kind of the hard the hard spaghetti junctions in your brain. You need to you know, you need to sit and think. And it's not just thank you very much, Professor Verkachansky, I'm going to use your uh, model and now I'm just gonna fill in the numbers. That's all great stuff. I mean, and a lot of the stuff you've mentioned there, like, you know, epigenetics, for instance, uh, for me personally, has been a, a huge area of interest. And I've, I've, studied, I've studied epigenetics an awful lot. And yeah, there's just so many factors. I mean, you know, epigenetics being one, and on all those environmental factors that influence everything from our nutrition to our circadian rhythm to environmental toxins to our relationships with people to our conditioning from a young age. I mean, there's just so many things that you don't see being mentioned when it comes to uh, the discussion of periodization or training models. And it's funny you mentioned that idea of an athlete buying in because I remember Carl Valley said the same thing. He was like, he's like, I've been reading literature and training for years and not one time have I ever came across this this concept of, yeah, but what if the athlete doesn't buy in? <laughs> so it was you know, sort of similar to that. And uh yeah, and just for people listening with, with the epigenetics thing uh, the, the Dutch hunger strike they always talk about that with epigenetics but it really gets the point across of how the environment is, is, is just so important in shaping the genetic expression of the organism so uh, it's all really really fascinating stuff okay John so the, the next sort of question that, that I'm going to ask uh, and maybe kind of just to wrap up the podcast on is how can we be become better decision makers and better planners when it comes to the training process well, I guess that's the six million dollar question, and you know, it, quite possibly, I've come across negative towards periodization, and you know, that's not my intention. It, my intention is just to kind of say it as I see it, and say that I, there isn't really any scientific basis for it. It's more of a tradition-driven concept. Uh, as there's a really interesting concept, uh, if you for, forgive me the diversion. Uh, called path dependence and the best example of path dependence is the QWERTY keyboard right so we all know the QWERTY keyboard we look at it all the time uh, but where did that come out of it seems like a very uh, strange arrangement of keys well originally it, the keys were arranged like that to stop the mechanism of the typewriter jamming because if people type quickly then the mechanical arms were inclined to uh, they weren't fully retracted before the next one came up so they jammed so they arranged the letters in a way to slow up our typing speed 
which sounds like a very sensible idea, but kind of fast forward to now, and we're still typing on it, you know, using a typeface that was set up to slow us down, yeah. even though the original problem is now gone. You know, and, and that's an example of path dependence. And I think periodization is a pretty good example of path dependence. It comes from an era where we were all about linear logic and just do this and everything will, you know, time and motion and so on. But now, even though we know that that's, that's really a crock, you know, that that's a, an illusion, a fantasy, we're still a little bit hung up on kind of have, on, on this idea of having a best way and, you know, uh, having a best uh, mesocycle length, for example, or a best rep range for X, Y, or Z. Even though the evidence, you know, keeps coming through that, you know, the more you generalize, the worse your program is. Uh, so, so yeah, so I really like that as a concept. Um, in terms of how we get better, I think the first thing is, the first thing is just conceptual clarity. It's just understanding. And, you know, to be honest, it doesn't matter if you want to use any off-the-shelf periodization model. I think that's absolutely fine as long as we understand it, as long as we're skeptical about it, as long as we understand that I'm just going to use this now because it's a good starting point, not because I actually believe all the hocus pocus behind it, but because you know it just makes sense to me and I'm going to use that as a starting point. But from there on, I, I would be recommending that we we reevaluate regularly and we redirect regularly. We we do all the things like monitoring, uh, obtaining feedback, and so on. Well, I think one of the other big problems we have is that if we work in an environment like sport, it's very hard to get meaningful, quick feedback. Mm -hmm. And without meaningful, quick feedback, it's very hard to learn. Now, l let me just give you an example so, so you know what I'm talking about. If you compare doctors and surgeons doctors tend to get to, their decision making processes tend to get worse with experience whereas surgeons get better now that's that's a mouthful and you know you got to wonder like why is that and the explanation is that well the doctor doesn't get direct feedback you go to the doctor, you tell them the problem, you tell her the problem, you get your prescription, whatever it is, and then they don't see you again. Maybe you go somewhere else to a different doctor, you didn't like we heard, maybe you get better, maybe you don't get better, maybe maybe you die, maybe something else happens. But either way, there isn't a, there isn't a feedback loop. And if there isn't a feedback loop, how do you learn? So if you're a surgeon, you do a surgery, you're right there stitching someone up, uh, you have all their vital signs being monitored, there's good follow-up, you get relatively direct feedback. As a consequence, you can learn and you can keep learning. But we work in an environment that's much more akin to the, the doctor's environment where we don't get direct feedback. Or, you know, we get very vague feedback. And our feedback tends to be as vague as, did we win the championship or did we win the title well then everything was very good if we didn't then everything was very bad and you know that's obviously not the case so so how do we learn and that's something that I you know have struggled with and I guess the best the best illustration of, of perhaps how we could do it is if you look at if you look at what experts tend if you look at the way learning progresses, the developmental path of learning, mm. normally what happens is we start something and we're crap at it, but then we get some experience and we get better, and we keep getting better with more experience. But then you know it, that tapers off and it levels out, and that's the area you know when we're already in the trade 10, 15, 20 years, <clears throat> that's when we come against the problem: how am I going to keep developing? And there's a very interesting uh, literature around decision-making in chess. Obviously, it's a different field, but it's something that's really easy to kind of to measure and evaluate. And what, what they found in chess is that people who are really good chess players, who've worked really hard, who've clocked up their thousands of hours, however many it was, 
and they've become really good but now they've tended to stagnate and those people are people who make a decision I'm going to make this move and then they look for reasons to justify their position so yeah that is a good move because X and because Y mm. whereas you look at the the, the, the grand masters the really the super decision makers and what they do is the opposite they look for reasons to devalidate their decision or they look to poke holes in their favourite theories because if we go to the trouble of thinking about something and then we make a decision you can be sure we're invested in that and we want that to be the truth yeah. so we're going to you know we're going to trip over ourselves trying to justify it so it's a, but the really good guys or girls what they do is what's wrong with that how can I reevaluate that now if I bring all this back to sporting realms and to you know to, to our world I guess there's a few basics you can't believe your pet theories you know there's an old saying uh, Richard Feynman or someone like that you know uh, you know it's easy to fool yourself we're the uh, you're the easiest person for you to fool yeah. and we do it all the time and it's just an, an innate ego mechanism e ego protection process Absolutely. but to try and to try and dismantle that I think there are a number of strategies there's you know I think something that is going to come into a lot more into professional clubs is, is the idea of delegating or designating a, a devil's advocate to argue the case um, because you know obviously we're we're in an environment where groupthink is, is, is rampant as well where we surround ourselves with people we like we tend to like people that agree with us so in a sense we're surrounding people with people that think like us and how is that the best way to get good 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 decisions obviously it's not it's probably the worst way to get good decisions but that's the way we do it uh, so I think for any of us who want to be better it's about putting in the hard models to scrutinise our decisions and the more married we are to decisions or to, to thought processes or to ideas then it's, again it's just putting in the work to analyse those to ask other people about them to put them to the test but if we're putting them to the test we want to we want to learn quick we want to fail quick and small rather than overcommit and uh, and fail catastrophically six months down the line and if I boil all this back in relation to, to periodization and planning yeah I, I think the first step is just sit sit and think deeply about what you want to achieve with your team or your or, or the athlete you work with and then how you're going to collect opinions not not how you're going to collect opinions that agree with yours but how you're going to collect meaningful critical opinions and it won't be it probably won't be comfortable to do that but out the other end hopefully will come a plan and a process that's been analysed and that's been bulletproofed and that you can have more faith in and I think that the, the other part of that, that that has to be linked to it, a plan is only as good as the process it's, it's embedded in. So it's, okay, how am I going to evaluate this plan and how am I going to change it? And again, my philosophy would be evaluate regularly, change small, so it's constant change rather than periodic U-turns. And uh, I think I've probably said a mouthful there and and hopefully if there's anyone awake that'll make some degree of sense it's the exact exact uh, type of, of information I really wanted you to get across on the podcast cause I, tr I truly enjoyed the, the, the paper you wrote and also this chapter for uh, for this book that you also wrote because so much of what you say is very much in, in, in line of the way I've been thinking about training over the last couple of years and um, you know again going back to these concepts of you know epigenetics and that humans are dynamic biological organisms and you know kind of taking that process that top process and saying listen you can't take these periodization models as you kind of said and i have alluded to already you can't take these periodization models that were you know origin that originated back in the 1950s and 60s based off the the, the scientific uh view of determinism 
uh, when we know that determinism now is 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 old science and that the new science is is epigenetics and that that again that you know we are as humans a biological organism and that we need to keep that in the back of our minds when we talk about periodization and, and the planning of training so i mean everything you spoke about there was was brilliant was spot on so um really delighted that you got your point across exactly how, how, how I wanted to get across and hopefully... Can I just add something there, Rob? Absolutely, yeah. Um, I don't want anyone to think that this is all about, you know, everyone was wrong in the past, but oh, we no, yeah. know because we're so 21st century. But, I mean, I, I, I'm really interested in the history of sport and the history of coaching. And absolutely. If you, if you go back to the 50s and 60s, there was, there was some coaches, especially track and field and swimming, that, that were... You know, you could parachute them in here now uh, and they could sit between us and they'd have the exact same ideas. Yeah. So Percy Ceruti, uh, Herb Elliott's coach in the 1960 Olympics when he won a gold medal, he would ask his guys, what do you feel like tonight? Okay, well, if we're going to easy tonight, we'll go hard the next night. We'll do the sand dunes and we'll do barefoot. And mm. A very, very much a training philosophy built around a loose program but also built around, if you like, building, building a, a, a philosophy and a morality around how you train. Absolutely. Uh, very much the same in swimming. Forbes Carlyle, another Australian doc councilman uh, in in the states. Yeah. But people who hadn't yet been blindsided by, and I think we have, been, we did get blindsided by the science, and it was like, it's all the science. And don't get me wrong, I mean, I work for a university, I'm an academic, right? But we we can't just take scientific findings on their own. We have to embed them within a conceptual framework for understanding what they mean. Mm. And if that conceptual framework is wrong, then you're always only, then, then you can know as many, the results of as many studies as you want, but you, if, your version, if your vision of what reality is is wrong, you're going to be piecing them together in an incorrect way. And I think that that's what some of these great early coaches had. And, and I think there's coaches now that have it ahead of the scientists, the likes of Dan Paff in, in Arizona, yeah, yeah. Uh, Aston Moore in the UK. I think there's a number of them, a number of islands of exemplary practice. Uh, I suppose uh, Ch Charlie Francis would probably fall into that category too. I mean, you know, he developed that system in the mid to late 70s and into the early 80s. So, certainly, he, Charlie Francis was very intelligent. Uh, and a lot of what he talked about and looked at, we're kind of starting to agree with it more and more now as the years go by. But yeah, certainly a visionary as well. Yeah, and uh, I was just saying there before um, before you started speaking out, like I'm delighted that you know I definitely feel you've come on now and, and really made your point clearly across everyone. I hope you feel that that you've done the same, that that you know that you've you've. Uh, that you've done yourself justice on this uh, on this podcast because uh, I know you're you're you you're keeping me very hard on yourself in terms of thinking you didn't get your point across clearly, but you you definitely did today. <laughs> well, thanks very much, but uh, yeah, I guess um, okay, yeah, I I I'll just take that. Thanks. Yeah, no, because I it's funny. I I'm exactly the same as yourself in terms of. I'm like, I hope I made sense there, and I, I hope pe people understood the point I was trying to make. So, but I I mean that was a fantastic. Uh, that was fantastic. The the whole hour there right now, John, was just brilliant. But uh, just just wrapping up, John. Um, uh, just a very general question. Uh, what would your advice be to all the coaches listening? Uh, in right now. Specifically in relation to planning. Uh, I know, I know. Sorry, that that's my that was a poor question. On my part. No, anything, anything at all. What would your top advice be to to the coaches listening? And it doesn't have to be with planning. Could be anything to do with just general life advice. You know, whatever, whatever you want to say. Well, you know, if, if, I was, if I was to pick on one concept just to think about, it would be the concept of path dependence. Mm. So think about how much we've inherited in terms of our ideas, our structures, the way we think about training. And just to kind of, we have to acknowledge that a lot of that isn't what's right. It's just what people thought right in the past. Yeah. So... I guess my advice and what you know the way I try and live my life in my practice is I, if, a, if a question is important to me I you know I sit and I think and I think deeply and I just 
I just stay at it until I get some type of clarity. And I make sure that, that clarity isn't just what I want it to be, but you know, I, I try and find out what is the best possible truth that I can arrive at given the current information. But I need to be sure that I don't become married to that idea and that I'm prepared to update it in the face of emerging evidence. Yeah, that, that reminds me of a... Uh... Just, just as we're as we're wrapping up here, I'm actually trying to look for it now. There's a, a very famous quote by Bruce Lee, but it's actually on the wall in the in the college I teach at. Um, let's see if I can actually find it. It's a, you know, about about this idea of you know have a principle, but don't be bound to the principle. You know, so like, like you 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 know essentially, if I was to summarize it, is like the only dogmatic belief you should have is not to be dogmatic. Bruce Lee is like. You should you should have a principle and abide by the principle and then dissolve the principle. Don't be bound in a cage by it. So to, to to be able to be able to step back and say these are my core principles, but at the same time I'm willing to change them based on the growth and development on this journey that I have throughout life. So I love that. Well, really interestingly, and and I'll, I'll make this really quick. In the world of forecasting, uh, forecasting political events, economical events, political uh, you know socio-economic events. There are, humans tend to be terrible at predicting how complex systems yeah. or complex phenomena will work out. Uh, and training just happens to be one example of a complex phenomenon. We all think we're good at predicting, but actually if you're to measure it, we're really bad at predicting. But not to mind that, if you were to look at the CNN analysts and the experts, they're terrible at predicting things as well. But there is a group of and this has only been uncovered in the past few years, there are, there are some people who are really good at it. They're like a quantum leap ahead of most of us. Most of us get it right 50% of the time-ish. But there's a group of people who, who, get it, who are super forecasters, is, is how they refer to it. And these people are characterized by non-adherence to an idea. So if they have a belief, they're ready to update it in the face of emerging evidence. Uh, they they accept their limitations. As a group, they tend to be very humble decision makers. Now, you know, when you say humble, people normally mean lack of confidence, or you know, somebody that's very meek. But you can be humble in the face of overwhelming complexity without having to be meek or wishy-washy. It just means you you acknowledge hey, you know what, I have a small human brain, I have a short lifespan of a few decades, this is a big, complicated universe. Mm. I don't understand it. I'm not going to pretend I understand it to myself, but that doesn't mean that I can't think about it deeply, make a best guess, and confidently put my foot, you know, my best foot forward. Yeah, and that's a, that's a concept you actually touched on in that chapter in that book as well. Um, and you know, I found it so fascinating too. You know, the fact that humans were so bad at making predictions when it came to the uh, the dynamic systems, it, it was it was very like they yeah. were they were so bad, like they were way off. Like, uh, in fact, you were saying uh, you said in that paper that like people who just made random guesses were were just as good, were were almost getting just as good uh, results as these so called experts. So it was very very interesting. And uh, well, well, the whole thing there is that we don't. For example, you read the newspaper every week and uh, you have people, analysts, famous analysts, getting paid lots of money to predict who will win the FA Cup or the World Cup or the Six Nations or whatever it is. But we, we never go back over all their predictions and put them to the test and see how many they got right. Yeah. And we don't do that in any domain. Uh, and if we did, we'd learn a lot. And what we'd learn is that, you know what, that's entertainment. They're just guessing. They haven't a clue. They're not going through proper thought processes. There are ways of looking at it, but it takes not just experience, but how would you how would you term it? Experience that you put to the test, so that you you and again it, it all comes back to a really boringly simple solution. You want to be better at something, don't just clock up time, but put your experience under scrutiny, analyze it, put your your most treasured ideas to the test. Yeah. And, and be prepared to be prepared to leave them behind if if they're not good. And you know what? It sounds easy, but it's actually a very hard thing for humans to do because we need to go through life with some degree of 
of confidence and some degree of, yeah, I'm really good, and you know, the guys I worked with won this and that, and you know, so a, a lot of yeah, I don't know, a lot of people with good CVs in terms of a lot of hits, you know, in terms of I worked with this person that won this and that team that won that. They tend to overemphasize how good they are based on past results. Mm. Whereas I think you get people who are maybe just as good theoretically, practically, but they don't have those big names on their CV and they kind of put themselves down a little bit. And a lot of that is just down to luck. And I'm saying this as someone that, you know, I've been, I have been lucky. I have quite a few names in my CV, but I do my best to not lull myself into some bullshit sense of security that that's because I'm, I'm really good. I think I was in the right place at the right time. I, I, I work hard at being good, but I don't really know how good I am because nobody does, right? And that's unfortunately the nature of the world. It's, it, you know, none of us are going to get a, you know, there's, there's no podium at the end of life where someone's going to say to me, jump up there, you were the best S&C ever. You know, mm. that ain't going to happen. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And just to, to wrap up the, the show, and I found this quote, it's uh, by Bruce Lee. So it's, uh, learn the principle, abide by the principle, and dissolve the principle. In short, enter a mold without being caged in it. Obey the principle without being bound to it. Learn, master, and achieve. That's the quote up on the wall in the college I teach at, so I love it. Very good. Yeah. John, thanks so much for, for being on the podcast today. I really appreciate it. And just for the guys listening, I know that on my end, for whatever reason, there was just a bit of echo with the with the microphone. I'll do my best to try and fix it up in the in the post edit. But anyway, for the most for eighty five to ninety percent of the podcast is John talking and his audio was very clear, so I think we're all good. But uh, if there was a case where someone didn't quite hear my question, you can just let me know on the blog and I, I'll let you know. So, John, just just stay on there for just an extra second and I'll just wrap up the show and, and uh, I'll say our goodbyes offline. So, for everyone listening, guys, this was uh, an absolute outstanding episode with uh, John Kiley. No doubt we'll have John back on again. I'm actually going down to see John present with Martin Bingazer in a uh, seminar in uh, University of Limerick next week. So um, this podcast will be up before then. So if you're listening to this and it's before May 14th, maybe look that up if you're around and, and make your way down. So uh, that's going to be a great day. So, John, thanks so much. And for everyone listening, take care, guys. I'll talk to you soon and stay strong. Mm-hmm.